Amen. Uh, so if you will go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 3. Um, we're actually finishing up uh, the third chapter of John tonight. Um, it's been uh, a few weeks here. Um, but as we finish up uh, John's third chapter tonight, we're going to see one of the greatest examples of what it truly means to serve Christ. And we're going to see in this passage the final testimony of John the Baptist. And we've seen John the Baptist a few times already as we've been in John's gospel in the, in the first few chapters. And every time we see John the Baptist, we see one thing. We see him boldly proclaiming Christ and lifting Christ up, exalting him to the level that he should be exalted. In this passage, John's going to give the ultimate exaltation of Christ. In this passage, we see him proclaim that Christ must increase and he must decrease. There's no greater attitude in the service of the king than to have than that, that Christ must increase and we must decrease. So let's look tonight at our text. It's starting in verse 22 of the third chapter of John and reading through the end of the chapter. And it says this, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Aenon near Salim because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent out before him. The one who is the bride is the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. And he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and what he has heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In one way, this passage seems so simple. There's, there's not really a lot to it. But as we look closer in it, the truth that's contained is so applicable to us here 2,000 years later. It's deep and it's wide. As I said before, this is John's final testimony in John's gospel. He would later be arrested and executed in the most brutalist of ways. Um, maybe someday we'll, we'll talk about exactly what happened to John. But what we see in the opening verses of this passage is the great popularity of John. It said, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the countryside and he remained there. John was also at bapti baptizing and people were coming to him and being baptized. So Jesus and his disciples, they went down uh, to the Judean countryside and we don't know exactly how much time has occurred since the last part of the chapter that we had read. This is 
after John has already baptized Jesus, after he has proclaimed Jesus to be the Lamb of God, Jesus has already gone to Cana. He's performed the miracle of turning the water into wine. He has gone to the temple, overturned the tables. He's had the, the initial fight with the Pharisees and temple leaders. And he has had this long conversation that we've looked at the last two weeks with Nicodemus about being born again. And now he has left Jerusalem and he is baptizing. And we need to make note that it's not Jesus himself that is baptizing. In John 4, 2, it says this, Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So his disciples were baptizing on his instruction. He was the one doing the teaching. His disciples were baptizing. And verse 23 tells us that John was also baptizing at some other location. He was also baptizing at Aenon near Salim. Now, we don't know exactly where those were, but it would have been somewhere in the Jordan Valley because waterfall was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. Now, John, he'd been, he'd been baptizing for quite some time. He had amassed quite a, a following. We don't know how long he'd been baptizing, but we know that large crowds came to him. In, in other uh, gospels, it says, uh, crowds and the word literally means a, a multitude of people. It's not just a crowd like uh, my wife would think that Walmart's crowded. Her and I have very different definitions of what crowded is, me growing up in the Charlotte area and her growing up here. But it's, it's a multitude of people. It's a lot of people, a whole host of people. And they were still coming to him even after he proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah. They still wanted to come to John the Baptist to be baptized. And the NIV, it even says that people were constantly coming to him to be baptized. He had a large following. He was popular with the common man and he was serving God's purpose for him in his time and place. This is what God had had for him to do. The apostle John does make a point in verse 24 to tell us that this was before John had been put into prison. Now you see, John was arrested and executed, as I'd said, uh, the other synoptic gospels, they don't record any of these events. The way they read, it makes it sound as if John was arrested immediately after he baptized Jesus Christ. But the apostle John makes clear that there were quite a few events that happened in between that initial event and John being arrested later. So the ministries of, of John and Jesus, they, they overlap to some degree. And his disciples are baptizing and Jesus and his disciples are baptizing. And so this actually becomes an issue. Look in verses 25 and 26. Now discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, the one who you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So it says a discussion started between some of the disciples of John and a, and a Jew. We don't know who that Jew was. Um, but they, they started talking about the purification rites, and, and baptism would have been part of those purification rites. This obviously was before baptism as we know it today, symbolizing the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. This would have been a, a purification. But the King James even says it was as a question, but the, the Greek word really means a dispute. It was a quarrel. It was an argument. Uh, it was a major controversy. It was an issue, like I said, being taken up about purification, who had the rights to do this, who didn't. And clearly John's disciples, they got riled by this because they go to their teacher and said, hey, Jesus is baptizing across the Jordan. 
why is he doing this? You're, you're, you're the one that's supposed to be doing this. Is, this is your ministry. This is what you're supposed to be doing. In fact, his disciples don't even use Jesus' name. They just say, the one you were talking about. They, they're like, why is he doing this? They're, he's taking people away from you. He's taking your, your followers away. And they're obviously upset about the encroachment of Jesus on John the Baptist's ministry. He's coming in on their territory, and they want John to go and put Jesus in his rightful place. You know, hey, Jesus, I know you're the Messiah. You, you know, I know you're the Christ. But hey, this baptism thing, that's, that's my gig. Now, that's kind of astonishing that they would think this. He, you know, he's already proclaimed that, hey, this is, this is the Messiah. But here they are. They're upset about what's going on. They said, yes, we know you bore witness about him, but he is overtaking you. He's, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Everybody's going to him, which we know is not true because it just said that people were still coming to John too. He wasn't, he wasn't taking everybody away, but clearly they're bothered by the fact that their teacher, the one that they had been following for an undisclosed amount of time, is no longer the main baptizer in the region. And these disciples, they would have been there when, when Jesus stood among them, as we saw in, in John chapter 1. They obviously remember John saying that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, but they didn't want to lose the crowds. They didn't want to lose their status. They wanted to be the people that crowds came to. But John, he has the perfect response. In verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. John recognized this in two ways. First, he was telling his disciples that Jesus would not have followers if that is not what God wanted, if that was not from heaven. But he was also saying in the same way, guess what? I would not have any followers unless it was given to me by God. It is only what God has given me that is going to come to me. And John was sensitive to the will of God as we have seen time and time Again, he understood his place. He knew his purpose. He knew his mission. He was not going to do anything less than that mission, but he also wasn't going to take more than what God gave him. He couldn't do anything more than his mission. It says in verse 28, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He's saying to them, You know I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Savior. I'm not the one that God has sent. I have boldly proclaimed this. I have pointed out to you who Christ is. I told you I'm not even worthy to strap up his sandals. So why are you complaining when I told you he is before me and now people are going to him? In verse 29, he gives an illustration. This is, one of the greatest statements that he can make in the role of God plan, uh, God's plan in verse 29 and 30. But in 29, he begins with the illustration. It says this, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Now, this metaphor of, of the bride and the bridegroom is something that we see throughout the New Testament very clearly that Jesus is the bridegroom, the church is his bride. But this was also, this was not a new illustration that was um, specific to the New Testament. God 
uh, has been said to be the bridegroom of Israel. And John would have known this. It says in Isaiah 62, 5, for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God has always seen his people as his bride, the ones that he loves and cares for. He takes care of his bride. He nurtures her, loves her. He provides for her, looks after her. And John uses that same illustration here. Jesus has the church. He is the bridegroom and the church is his bride. Jesus takes care of the church. Jesus is the one that saves. Jesus is the one that deserves the praise and the glory. He is the caregiver. He is the shield and the fortress. And he is the one that wins the day. And John says, the friend of the bridegroom rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. At a, at a wedding, you have a wedding party. And even today, the wedding party is responsible for quite a bit. You know, I was just in one with Blake and Cassie. And, you know, we're responsible to, to make sure things run smoothly, to make sure that uh, things are in their place, to make sure people get seated correctly, things are going cor right. The bridesmaids help the bride get ready. The groomsmen, we help the groom get ready. And this was even more so the case in first century Jewish culture. I mean, particularly for the friend or, or what we would consider the best man of the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, he was actually in charge of everything. He was to make sure the celebration preparations were complete. He was to make sure that people knew about the event. He was to take care of all details. He prepared the way for the wedding to take place. He made sure that everything was in its place and in order. He would bring the bride to the bridegroom and deliver her to him so the marriage could be consummated and would rejoice when he heard the joy of the bridegroom at his bride. And at that moment, when the wedding was underway, the friend of the bridegroom would announce the success of the wedding to the guests and all the people and the, the festivities could get underway. But then at that point, the friend of the bridegroom begins to fade away, fade into the background because he's no longer the focus. Now all of the focus is on the bride and the groom. But that would not upset the friend of the bridegroom. The, that brings him great joy to know that his friends are now happily married. You know, I've, like I said, I've been in several weddings in my life. And at the beginning of the wedding, you know, when it's just the groomsmen and the bridesmaids, well, we're kind of the center of attention. But as soon as that bride gets delivered to that groom, nobody cares about the rest of us standing up there anymore, right? Everybody's eyes are on two people, the bride and the groom. They're the center of attention. The focus is not on us, it's on them. The wedding party's job is complete. It's done. It's finished. Mission accomplished. And now let's fade into the background and let the couple being married become that center of attention. It is in this way that John describes his role to Jesus Christ. He is the friend of the bridegroom. He was sent to prepare the way. He is the one making the plans, following God's direction to make way for the coming of the Messiah, the bridegroom who would collect his bride. He led people to repentance. He proclaimed the lamb and now he has delivered the bride as people are leaving John and going to Christ. Christ is the center of attention now, but John's not upset by this. No, quite the opposite. He says that because of this, his joy is complete. His joy is complete. 
He's rejoicing because of this. He's happy. He's glad. He's ecstatic. He couldn't be more proud of what's going on and what he was able to have a part in. And stepping back into the background as Jesus takes center stage, his heart's dancing. He's leaping, as I'm sure, just like he did in his mother's womb when Mary came and visited his mom before they were both born. He's excited about this. He's happy about this. The Messiah is finally here and people are going to him instead of me. And he's saying to his followers, letting them know, you should be rejoicing about this too. You should be happy about this. You should not be upset about this in any way. They should be joyful. They have accomplished what they had set out to do. You know, maybe his followers didn't realize that was the mission they had set out to do. But John knew. He knew exactly what the mission was. Christ is here. Their joy is complete. This is the, this is the highest degree of joy. There is, there is no greater joy on earth than what John is experiencing in this moment. He was at the pinnacle. He had reached the top. The only time John was ever going to be happier was after his execution. He was in the midst of the Father. That would be the only time he'd be happier. He got it. He understood his role. He understood his purpose. And he says the most extraordinary thing next in verse 30. He must increase but I must decrease. What a statement. He must increase, but I must decrease. My time here is complete. I've done my job. It's finished. Mission accomplished. I'm fading in the background. Christ is going to take center stage. He's going to be the focus now. I'm just the warm-up band, you know? This is, this is the real deal. This is, this is the one you want to see. I'm, I'm just the guy that fills in time beforehand. Nobody needs me. Nobody needs remember me. Look to Jesus Christ. Christ must increase. Christ must be exalted. Christ must be the one that we look to. Christ must be the center focus, the center of attention. And John, he had done something that was already difficult. He had, he had amassed followers in a, in a culture that was not easy to get followers in. It was a very legalistic culture. But he had amassed followers that were going to be loyal to him through thick and thin. He was a great leader. He was good at what he did. He was good at his purpose. And he, but he knew that he was just there gathering those to get ready for the Messiah. And now that Messiah was here, John does the unthinkable. He's amassed all these followers. They're loyal to him to the end. And he releases them. He says, I want you to leave me. It's time to follow him. It's time to follow Christ. That's who you need to go after. He releases them to Christ. He was only the placeholder, the, the forerunner, the trailblazer. He was not the Christ. He was not the king. And he was willing to give up any power he had amassed on earth. Give it up to Christ and let Christ take the lead. Christ must increase. Christ must be the one. Christ is the only one who is worthy. It is Christ. It is Christ. It is Christ. It is Christ. And as I was, as I was preparing for tonight, I actually became a little convicted because of an email I sent to Nick. I was, I've been frustrated this week thinking about how sometimes that we have services here mixed with other churches and you know, how that doesn't do anything to bring people into this church. And as I was studying this, this hit me like a ton of bricks. Christ must increase. It's only about Christ. 
It's only about Christ. It doesn't matter what programs we have. It doesn't matter what music we play. It doesn't matter what events we hold. It doesn't matter how many people are in these pews. It doesn't matter how popular our pastor is. It doesn't matter if we're on radio or TV or how many hits we get on our webpage or how many people are listening to our podcast. It doesn't matter any of that. All that matters is Christ. Is Christ being lifted up? Is Christ the center? Are we pointing people to Christ or are they just, are they just looking at what we do, what things we do, what events we put on? It's so easy to get caught up in numbers and to judge our ministry based on that metric as if it's some sort of uh, goal that you got to have X amount of people in these pews or you're not doing your job right. But that's a worldly invention, isn't it? I don't see anything about numbers in the Bible, about how many people you should have following you. We could have the biggest church in America, but if we're not pointing people to Christ, and if Christ isn't the center focus, it's worthless. It's just rags. You know, and I've, I've been part of those types of churches and ministries. It's, it's a popularity contest. It's not about Christ, and it grieves our Lord. He is the one that deserves the glory. He is the one that deserves the praise. Not a pastor, not an organization, definitely not me. Christ must increase and we must decrease. Christ must increase. It means that he must become more important than anything or anyone. He must grow in respect. He must grow in honor. He must grow larger than us because on our own, we can accomplish nothing. Christ must increase. And the fact that John the Baptist was able to say this and not just say it, but actually mean it shows how great John the Baptist actually was. You know, we don't give him enough credit. He's, he's underrated. He, he really is. He, he's got these few little blurbs in scripture that we look to every once in a while, but I don't think we understand what he actually accomplished and what he actually did and the example he leaves for us, we should look to him as the ultimate example of a servant of Christ because he had followers, he had everything, he had the numbers, and he gave it all up to focus on Christ. We must do everything to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. We are nothing, Christ is everything. 1 Corinthians 10:31 says, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything we do must be for Christ. Everything we do must be to lift Christ higher, to exalt his name, to bring glory and honor to his name, to exhibit and show uh, the majesty that he holds. That's our sole mission. That is the only thing we are called to do is to exalt Christ. Anything else that becomes our center focus and attention is just a distraction. We don't need fancy lights, loud music. We don't need tons of instruments, flashy singers. We don't need any of that as long as we are boldly proclaiming the name of Christ. That's not to say that there's anything wrong with those things. You know, I want to fellowship Paul out here as much as anybody else, and that's good. But we need to make sure that when we do things, that Christ is the focus. Christ is the reason, and it's in no possible way about us. And that hit me like a ton of bricks this week. I get so caught up sometimes in saying, hey, we need to fill these pews or man, I wish there were more people to hear me preach sometimes. But that's just focused on me. 
when the focus should be on Christ and Christ alone. If we are not growing and thriving both individually and as a group, we need to look no further than the place that Christ has in our lives, our churches, and our ministries. Because if Christ is not the center, if He is not the focus, you are not going to be blessed as a ministry. It doesn't matter how many people you have. I used to go to one of the largest churches in America down in Charlotte, North Carolina called Elevation Church. They have thousands of people every Sunday. And as I look back on my time there, it was shallow. It was shallow. People weren't growing. It was, it was entertainment. Christ must be the focus. If He's not, what is the point? Is He the focus? Is He the center? Are we giving Him center stage? Or are we trying to do it all for our own accolades and our own honor? Christ must increase. We must decrease. What a statement for the final testimony of John the Baptist. Christ must increase. I must decrease. Verse 31, it says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Again, John affirms Christ is from above. He's not from this world. He's from heaven. He is of God because he is God. I mean, how many times in the first three chapters has the apostle wrote about this? Christ is God. You cannot deny that. And because of this fact, he is above all. John knew that he was from this earth and that he could only speak of things on this earth because that is all the knowledge that he had. He could not speak with the same authority that Christ had because Christ has the fullness of the Spirit. He can't speak with that same authority because he is from earth and not above as Christ was. He understood and knew that Christ could do more than he could ever even dream of. He couldn't even scratch the surface of Christ's potential, much less what Christ could actually do. He continues in verse 32 and 33. It says, He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever does receive his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Christ bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Well, well what is that? What has Christ seen and heard? He is God. He was seated at the right hand of the Father. He has seen and heard the Father. He has seen and heard heaven. He has seen and heard the angels. He has seen everything. He knows what is true. He knows what is pure. He knows what is right. He has been witness to all of these things. He is over all of these things. He left his throne above to descend to this earth to bear witness of these things. And yet, he is rejected. The very one who knows everything, who knows all about us, who knows all about our situations in life, he knows our problems, our struggles, our triumphs. He knows everything about God, the Father. He was rejected. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean that every, every person in this situation, not everyone is condemned, except in this sense, it is true that nobody in their natural state accepts him. In our natural state, we always reject Christ because in our natural state, we hate the light as we saw earlier in chapter three. 
But those who have accepted the testimony of Christ by the power of the Spirit, they set their seal that God is true. They give their stamp of approval. They say, I am certifying that this is what is right, that I know this to be true, that this is genuine. I'm willing to stake my life on it. I'm willing to put everything on the line for this. I know this is true. He is the Christ. He is the one. He is the Savior. What Christ says is on the authority of God the Father. They set their seal on it that it is true. Verse 34 and 35, For he whom God has sent utters the very words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. The God the Father has sent the Son in this world to proclaim his message to bear witness about him. Remember, his name was to be called Emmanuel. What does Matthew 1.23 say? It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is with us. God came to this earth. The son speaks of the father. The son speaks on the authority of the father. The son is from the father. All things have been given to him and been given into his hands. He controls it all. There is nothing in this world that is outside of the reign and authority of Christ, including the bad things that we see happen. It's not that he doesn't know about these things. He's sovereign over all of that. And all those have a plan in God's purposes and time and space. Christ must increase. And again, this will be the song that will be sung for all eternity as the same Apostle John wrote in Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, he says this, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders of the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Worthy are you, O God. Worthy, holy, powerful, mighty, majestic, merciful, righteous the Lamb of God, slain for you, slain for me, to take away the sin of the world. And at the end of the marriage supper of the Lamb that John has prophesied about in this passage, it will take place in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 8. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Let us rejoice for the marriage of the Lamb of God, and His bride, the church, has come to Him. Christ must increase. Christ must be exalted. He will be lifted on high. He will receive the final victory. He has overcome. He's already won. He will be the one that has finally conquered sin and death. It will be no more. He is the king. 
Everything and everyone has been given to him, whether it is in heaven or whether eternal torment. And the final verse in John chapter 3 says this, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Remember the greater context of this passage. It's about eternal life versus eternal wrath. Remember as Jesus spoke with Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. But necessitating that if only those who believe will not perish, that means those who don't believe will perish. If you do not believe in the Son, the wrath of God remains on you for all eternity. Wrath, it's, it's an anger, it's a, it's a fury. It focuses on divine retribution for the great sins that we have committed against God. This is not where you want to be. You do not want to be under God's wrath for eternity. You know, I've often heard people say that the worst thing about hell is that God is not there. And you know what? That is not true. It's not true. The worst thing about hell is that God is there enacting his wrath on the people confined within. That's the worst thing about hell. God is in charge of hell, not Satan. You know, sometimes we think that the devil runs hell. No, no. The devil is going to be under eternal torment, just like the rest of those who do not believe in the Son. That's the scary part of hell, is that you are eternally under the wrath of God. We need to never forget that. We need to never forget that God is in charge of everything and everyone. And the reason you go to hell is not because of your sin. That is what causes us to have a reason to go to hell. But the ultimate reason people go to hell is because they reject the Son. Because they do not accept the light. Christ must increase. The whole point of this chapter is to show the dire state we are in compared to the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ and that Christ is the answer to all of our problems, that Christ is our salvation, that Christ is the cornerstone. John the Baptist, he had the greatest humility and contentment for where God had placed him and that Christ must increase while he must decrease. And we must ask ourselves, is that where we are at? today? Are we working to increase Christ? Are we working to make Christ the center or are we going after some other treasure or some other fame? This is something that I have to work on daily. Pride is so easy to creep in. So easy to creep in. I, I wrote a letter to, to one of my favorite preachers uh, a couple of months ago and he actually wrote me back because the reason I'd written to him is he talked about how it's easy for him to, if, if unchecked, to fall into pride. And I wrote him and said, you know, Dr. Lawson, that's, that's the same thing I struggle with. And he wrote back and said, just remember Romans eleven thirty six, For by him and to him and because of him are all things. Glory and honor be to Christ. You know, Patrick, the, the great missionary to Ireland, you know, we'll be focusing on him later this month with St. Patrick's Day, which actually has nothing to do with what Patrick actually stood for. That's another 
thing for another time. He's credited with having written something called St. Patrick's Breastplate. It's a, a long prayer of how he would posture himself before God, a prayer of, of confession and, and where he wanted to be. But there's one section that I, I think just beautifully matches what we are going after tonight. And it says this, it says, Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ within me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ to the right of me, Christ to the left of me, Christ in my lying, Christ in my sitting, Christ in my rising, Christ in the, in the heart of all who think of me, Christ on the tongue of all who speak to me, Christ in the eye of all who see me, Christ in the ear of all who hear me. What a prayer that Christ should be evident in everything that we say, everything that we do, and that when people look at me, they don't see David Taylor, they see Jesus Christ. And when people look at you, they don't see you, they see Jesus Christ. And when people see Bethlehem Church, they don't see a church, they see Jesus Christ. Christ should be Everything we say, everything we do, every part of our lives should seek to increase Christ as we continually fade into the background for His glory. That He is the one that is proclaimed throughout the earth because He is the one that is worthy. He is the one to be praised and He is the one that people need to see. They don't need to see me. They don't need to see you. They need to see Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you again for for this time when we could come and just focus on your word. And Lord, we, uh, we do pray, Lord, that people would see Jesus in us, Lord. Forgive me where I have failed in that, Lord, and where I've let pride creep in, Lord. Let us always work to exalt your Son, that he may be lifted up, that people will see Jesus in me, and people will see Jesus in our church that they will come to know the Savior as we know Him, that they might have eternal life. Let us never lose sight of that. Let us never forget that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.